Uh, Father, thank you that uh, we meet your Son in the Scriptures, and please do help us to see him more clearly and follow him more nearly. In him, amen. We've called this series, Jesus, See Him More Clearly, and I guess I want to ask, do you? Uh, do you see him more clearly? Uh, do you see him clearly? Do you see him, uh, what does your head say? Uh, what does your life say about Jesus? Uh, what do you think about Jesus? What does your life imply about Jesus? Uh, by reading Mark's Gospel, uh, you can see Jesus more clearly than you would have seen him if you'd been there. Uh, Mark tells you what happened in history. He shows you where it points. It's a great book to read if you're curious but not yet committed. It's a great book to read if you're committed but not yet perfect. After seven and a half chapters, it's pretty clear who Jesus is. Jesus speaks and reality bends to his will. Uh, miracles, you know, wind, waves, uh, the demons, disease, death even. He speaks and it is so. The evidence fits with what Mark said about Jesus right up front in chapter 1. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. The Lord God come after the one who prepared his way. But almost no one in this story has seen him. Not seen who he is. The disciples see him more clearly than most. But they've been struggling. They don't yet understand. By telling us what the eyewitnesses saw, it's kind of ironic that we, that Mark helps us see Jesus more clearly than any of them did at the time. We see where the evidence points. But there's some new information coming today, and I think it's a good stage as we see the disciples struggling, a good stage to ask, do you see Jesus clearly? What does your head say about him? What does your life say about him? So chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus and his disciples, they arrive into Bethsaida. Uh, some people bring a blind man to Jesus, and we expect Jesus to do what he always does. We expect him to speak, and reality to bend to his will. But it's not that straightforward. We just read it. Jesus spits in the man's eyes. He puts his hands on him. He asks, do you see anything? And the man sees people, but they look like trees walking. It's all blurred. Jesus tries again, and this time he sees clearly. So why stage one and then stage two? Why blindness and then partial sight and then clear seeing? Well, it's not because blindness is so much harder than giving life and breath to a dead girl. No, Jesus did it this way, and Mark mentions that he did it this way to help us understand what's going on. To help us understand what's going on with the disciples seeing Jesus. It's a picture of what's happening in them. They're struggling to see, they're starting to see, but they don't yet see clearly. Not yet. So verse 27, the, Jesus asked the disciples, what do people say about, about him? The Christ think he's John the Baptist or Elijah or another prophet. <laughs> They're blind to who Jesus really is. He is so far, far and away greater than John the Baptist or any other prophet. We've been seeing after, in chapter and chapter after chapter of what Jesus has been doing. So Jesus then asks his disciples, what do they think? And Peter answers for all of them when he says, you are the Christ. You're the promised king. You're the descendant of King David, whose rule will be so much greater than his. 
And if it was your first time reading uh, through Mark's Gospel, uh, you, you might think, well, at last they've got it. We've been waiting for seven and a half, we're waiting eight chapters to hear this. Seven and a half. Jesus starts teaching something which has barely been hinted at in chapters 1 to 7, though. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And Simon Peter has no space for that plan. He has no patience for his Christ telling him he will suffer, that he'll be rejected, that he'll die. So moments after he's acknowledged Jesus as king, Peter rebukes his king. And Jesus rebukes him, saying, get behind me, Satan. Whatever Peter said in the confusion of the moments, it came to Jesus as Satan's attempt to knock him off God's plan. Yeah, the disciples see Jesus. Peter sees Jesus partially, not yet clearly. He's a blur in front of them. It's that sort of thing. They're right to call Jesus Christ, but they don't yet see clearly what it means for Jesus to be Christ. They even push back when Jesus says what it means for him to be Christ. But it's not just the disciples who need to see Jesus more clearly. Chapters 1 to 7, they've sharpened our vision of Jesus as the Lord, (laughs) the Lord God come to save and judge But to see him in focus, we need to see that he is the Lord God come to serve by suffering. Make no mistake, he is glorious. He is the glorious Christ. Jesus is saying he's glorious when he calls himself Son of Man. It's kind of a, a subtle way to do it, but it's a clear way to do it when you look back. Beyond his suffering, death, and resurrection, he will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's chapter 8, verse 38. Chapter 2, chapter two he said that he, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He also said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, Son of Man. Son of Man is a phrase that comes out of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of, God, Son of Man comes to God, the Ancient of Days, on his throne. The Son of Man is given God-like dominion and glory and eternal rule over all peoples and nations and languages. They all serve him. Jesus is that son of man, the one with all authority, the one who will come to the Father, the one who will come in the glory of his Father. So Christ speaks about his glory by calling himself son of man. Another way we see Jesus' glory uh, through this section is when the disciple, he takes his disciples, the inner circle of disciples, up on a high mountain, chapter 9. Verse 2, he's transfigured before them, he's changed, he's transformed. He's seen in his glory. <laughs> now, I think I'm right when I, uh, when I reflect and think that the Ancient of Days we just saw sitting there in, in, cl- in clothes as white as snow, and then, and then the disciples see the Son of Man in clothes Radiant, intensely white, whiter than anyone could bleach them. It's a glimpse of Christ's glory. Uh, then they see Moses and Elijah and the, the two great Old Testament prophets who talked with the Lord God on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And here they're talking with Jesus on this mountain. 
It's a glimpse of Christ's glory. And God in heaven points to Jesus and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's like Peter, James, and John are suddenly getting the sign from heaven that the Pharisees wanted. God says, this is my son. My beloved son, listen to him. He's the Christ. Everything he said is true. And the rest of chapter 9, chapter nine into chapter 10, they, they show us what's now familiar, uh, glimpses of Jesus' glory as he commands and heals and speaks. His authority over the evil spirit world, uh, we see it when he casts out a particularly stubborn demon. Uh, his word shapes reality at the end of the section when he heals Bartimaeus, a blind man. Uh, right through that middle, the middle of that, that he has assumed authority as he teaches. He just keeps speaking like everyone who he speaks to is under his authority. Uh, that, that you should believe what he teaches, that you should trust what he promises, that you should obey what he commands. He just assumes it. But having seen what we've seen, you realize it's true. Jesus, the Son of Man, commands and heals and speaks like you'd expect God to command and heal and speak. It's a glimpse of his glory. Make no mistake, right? Jesus, he is the glorious Christ. When we see him clearly, we see that he is the Lord God come to save and judge. But when we see him in focus, we see that he is the Lord God come to save and judge, come to serve by suffering. The glorious Christ came to serve by suffering. I'm going back halfway through the passage and then um, back to the start again to see that. Uh, three times through this section, the Lord Jesus uh, says he must suffer, die, and rise. Uh, each time he speaks, uh, there's more detail. The glorious Son of Man, the one with all authority, is going to Jerusalem where he will be condemned, mocked, spat on, flogged, killed, and rise. We expect it. I think most of Mark's first readers expected it. You know, if, if anyone, if anyone uh, knew anything about Christianity, it's like, got the, it's the Jesus guy who died. But feel the enormity of it. Try to feel the enormity of it. That Jesus, the glorious Christ, the Son of Man, the one who commanded wind and sea, the one who controlled the uncontrollable legion of demons, the one who gave his life, sorry, who gave, the one who gave life to the dead, must suffer and die. No wonder the disciples struggled to get their heads around what Jesus was saying. But it is at the heart of what Jesus was saying. His death is exactly why he came. His death is how he serves. Chapter 10, verse 45 is critical. It unlocks our understanding of so much of the rest. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The reason the glorious Son of Man came was to give his life as a ransom. His death is the price to free many. Just after he first declares his death, Jesus asks, uh, Jesus Jesus asked, what's the point of owning your whole, the whole world when even if you owned it all, you wouldn't have enough to free your soul? 
It's like whatever you live for, whatever you strive for, whatever you achieve, even if you went far beyond your wildest dreams and had all of it, you wouldn't have enough to hand over in exchange for your soul. You couldn't free yourself. Free yourself from what? Well, over the page, the last section of chapter 9, last paragraph-ish, Jesus says, better to enter life than to go to hell to unquenchable fire. Better to enter the kingdom of God than to be thrown into hell. And the pictures of the horror of judgment he uses, they're confronting. He talks about being eaten by maggots that always have something to feed on, being burned by, in a fire that always has something to burn. Eternally. There's a debt that every human owes. A just and fair judgment that we can't get ourselves out from under. A debt we can't pay. If any one of us got everything it's possible to get, that person couldn't pay their way out from under that debt. Couldn't escape the judgment they deserve. So the Son of Man paid. The glorious Christ gave his life to free many from the debt they could not pay. His death opens eternal life to those who without him would know only eternal death. The almighty Lord Jesus gave his life to free many. And he says that's his service. That's how he serves. I think it's key to hear that. That's how he serves. Connect the word service with king. You tend not to think of the king doing the serving. We expect the powerful to demand service. We expect the wealthy to be served. But Christ came to serve. The glorious king, the son of man with all authority came to serve. He came to serve by giving his life. Seeing seeing Jesus clearly means seeing he is the glorious Christ and seeing that he came to serve by suffering. You need to see both. You need to see both clearly. If you follow Jesus, that is who you follow. The glorious Christ who served by suffering. Who served by suffering. But the disciples through here, they're following who they saw. And who they saw was a Christ who shouldn't suffer, a Lord who needn't serve. At this stage, they had some sense of Christ's glory, but they push everything away that has to do with his suffering and his death. So as Jesus keeps coming back to it, we keep seeing them, well, not see. Straight after the second time Jesus predicts his suffering, uh, death and resurrection, Mark tells us they don't understand. Then he shows us they don't understand. How can we tell? Chapter 9, verse 34. He shows us they don't understand by showing us what they think it means to follow. They're arguing among, among one another about who's the greatest. It's like they're thinking, we're the top 12, but who's the top of the top 12? Who's the greatest or the greatest? 
And Jesus corrects them and says, well, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Do they get it? Well, no. Look at chapter later. A chapter later, the first thing that James and John do after the next time Jesus talks about his suffering and death, they push for privilege. They say to him, when you come to your throne above everybody else, can we be just below you, above the rest of these guys and the rest of everyone else? What aren't they saying? Why are they getting it so wrong? They aren't saying what Jesus keeps saying. That it is death, then resurrection and glory. That Jesus' path of service, well, that it is a path of service and suffering and then glory. They say no need for his service and suffering. They just want to get straight to glory. They just see glory and they want a slice of it. Where Jesus puts it 1042, they're infected by the way people usually think about power and authority. We expect every ruler from ancient kings like Herod to uh, modern politicians and CEOs, we expect them to use their positions to help themselves. It's no surprise to see self-interest. Jesus says that's no way to live. It's no way to live if you follow the glorious king who came to serve. So verse 43, 1043, he says to his disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. And then he explains why. The next verse, why? Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see that connection? The word for? Who Jesus is shapes what it means to follow him. We follow the glorious Son of Man who served, so there is no room for self-serving, no room for lording it over, no room for self-centered, self-interest. His services are pattern. It's a pattern for every follower. It's a pattern for every leader. The great ones are the servants. The greatest are the slaves. Let's go back to chapter 8. The tail end of the reading we had today. Uh, Think a bit more about what that means. Chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, those who follow Jesus can expect suffering, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's not just expect to suffer. It's choose. It's a deliberate choice. It's deliberately following the one who went to the cross Carrying our own cross. Denying our own selves. I kind of touched already on how pointless it would be to do anything else. Uh, You could save your life and try to keep it, but to protect your life while protecting what's going to be destroyed. To protect your life by never listening to Jesus, but actually... You you could pull back um, when acknowledging him, from acknowledging him, you could... Pull back when 
being true to his gospel costs more than you're willing to pay, but it impacts your comfort, convenience, safety, security, pleasure, prestige, prosperity, life, you could pull back. But it would be pointless to protect yourself because you will inevitably fail. Whatever you gain, you would lose your soul, yourself, your life. Because of the judgment, you'd stand without Jesus to protect you. You'd you'd stand owing your own unpayable debt. He will stand with those who follow him, with those who trust him. He'll include you, he'll include me as one of his people if we follow him. And following him now means self-denial. It means following him with the cross we'll die on on our backs. That's how he talks about it. I want to try and get clear on what does that mean. What does it mean to be a servant, to be a slave? What does it mean to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow? I think I need to first say there are a couple of things that self-denial and taking up your cross aren't. Because there are all sorts of odd ideas that have been attached onto this passage. There's some who think self-inflicted pain is superior spirituality. The obvious over-the-top idea is the self-harm of self-harm and self-punishment. You think of monks flailing themselves, hitting themselves with whips. But there's a milder version, I think, of choosing the difficult thing because it's difficult. As if difficult is inherently much more godly and better than doable. But Jesus isn't saying inflict pain on yourself. No, I don't think he's, he's not giving you a different perspective on your pain. He's not saying like the, the pain of a bad back that, you, that, that you, you had before you started following. As soon as you start following, well, that's a cross you've got to bear. It may sound strange to point it out, but uh, some folk, you, you will hear some folks say that every physical or mental pain is a cross to carry. Now, the scriptures have important things to say. Jesus has important things to say about suffering. about that suffering that comes to us. But Jesus isn't saying them here. He's talking about deliberate choice. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. But choice to, for what? Also, it's actually not choosing to suffer. <laughs> Neither self-harm nor doing difficult simply because it's difficult. He's not saying find ways to hurt yourself. He's actually saying find ways to serve others. He's saying find ways to serve others. The goal is service, not suffering. Suffering is incidental. I was thinking about this yesterday after five minutes or so of self-inflicted pain. Uh, Leg day is the worst day. Uh, So after five minutes, um, but five minutes of my legs screaming at me, stop, but I didn't stop. It's not because I enjoy the pain or want it or need it. (laughs) I push through the pain because I want the benefits from my body and mind and health span of doing hard exercise. The pain's incidental. When Jesus took up his cross, his goal wasn't pain. The Lord Jesus didn't come 
to give his life. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. See the difference? He endured the cross for the joy set before him. He suffered in order to serve. Does that help? So Jesus is telling us to follow him, well, really to follow him in other person-centered service. Suffering, like his suffering, is suffering for the sake of others' good. Suffering as a consequence of serving. The suffering we're to embrace is the suffering of denying self in order to serve others in Jesus' name. The aim is other person-centered service. And and the, the pain is incidental, really. Inevitable. But the goal is the service. The goal is to be a blessing. Now, part of that pain is the pain of saying no to self-interest. The pain of self-denial. Not denying yourself something. Denying yourself. Saying no to self. Refusing to follow self. Because being a blessing to others inevitably, inevitably will come to the point where it's Compromising your own self-interest. So following Jesus means saying no to your hopes and plans and desires, your purposes, your dreams, your values, your priorities, your intentions, your goals, your interests. Because following Jesus is taking on his. His hopes, plans, desires, purposes, dreams, values, priorities, intentions, goals, interests. It means no longer living for yourself, but for the one who died for you and is raised again. The one who gave his life as a ransom for you. It means costly service to others. It means spending yourself to be a blessing to others. And given how Jesus served on the eternity of heaven and hell, well, there's a focus. It's costly service in all manner of ways. I'm not wanting to limit it. But it's especially costly, it's especially costly service in gospel ways. You, know, you have never met a mere mortal. You'll never meet someone who has something to give in exchange for their soul. You'll never f- meet someone who's found another way to get out from under the debt they owe. Who's found their own way to escape the judgment they deserve. Your service fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Your service declares Christ's death to those who need to hear it, that they might trust it. It's wider than that, but it's got to include that, hasn't it? Just a few more thoughts. Most of the disciples, they literally lost their lives for Christ's sake and his gospel's. But each of them denied themselves. They took up their cross and followed the Lord Jesus long before their martyrdom. They kept serving when it cost. They served in gospel ways because because they saw Jesus clearly. It's worth uh, talking with you to establish a group uh, and talking just out around the place with, with one another about the extraordinary and ordinary ways we get to deny ourselves. 
What are some routine and regular Monday to Sunday self-denials? I guess it's how we respond when self wants to keep your money that you earned for your needs. It's how we respond when self wants the comfort of staying in a bubble of people who think what you think and believe what you believe. When self wants to keep quiet and avoid the tension of trying to get Jesus on the the agenda with a non-Christian friend yet again. When self wants to cancel the person who disapproves of you. When self wants uh, the time and energy back from investing in your discipleship group. When self wants to get at least as much out of a relationship as you're putting into the relationship. Well, when self wants to stay when the gossip starts. (laughs) Extraordinary things and ordinary things. When self pulls us in a direction which is away from where following Jesus pulls us in godliness and holiness, in service to others, living for their good, aiming for their gospel blessing. Now, as we began, do you see Jesus clearly? What does your head say? What does your life say? You think something about who Jesus is and your life says something too. You have to think about how they fit. How you follow him says something. Now I realize maybe uh, some, uh, some of you aren't following Jesus. I'm not wanting to assume you are. You're not yet convinced or, or you haven't yet committed. I'm glad your curiosity has brought you here. What is it about how you see Jesus? And see in inverted commas, what is it about how you perceive Jesus that's holding you back from following and are you perceiving what's true about him? Now, I know you know that's the issue, kind of like partly why we're in the Bible together. But no, like, we, just, we just love helping friends get to grips with what's true about Jesus. Talk with us. Those of us who already follow Jesus, I'll follow him, but know we follow him imperfectly. Yeah. Our self still has too much of a say, doesn't it? Can I encourage you just to, to think, to think on your own, to think with your discipleship group, to think with others? Where does self have too much of a say? Where are you still saying yes to self? And when you see, when you see where your self-interest still survives, well, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and see him clearly. See him as the glorious Christ who did not come to serve, sorry, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See him as the one who selflessly paid your debt so you have nothing to pay, nothing to prove. Keep trusting him, trusting him for forgiveness, trusting him as he calls you to follow, denying yourself, taking up your cross. Keep following him in costly, other person-centered service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that 
your glorious Son took on flesh. Thank you that the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give, a, give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you that he paid the debt we could not pay, that he took the judgment we deserve. Father, please open our eyes to see clearly both his glory and his service. We ask that seeing him give us courage to live with confidence before you because of what he's done for us and to walk after him, to follow him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to serve others when it costs us dearly, to deny ourselves and live instead for the one who died for us and is raised again. It's in him that we pray. Amen.